And I can talk about career paths endlessly. Um, it's something that I've always been interested in. I actually, looking back, you know, I actually always loved sitting down and having a beer with people and asking them what led them, you know, to where they are today and talking about, you know, when they reached a fork in the road, how did they make a decision to move, you know, in one direction or the other. And I always was fascinated by those kinds of conversations. And it wasn't actually until I got my current job that I realized, oh, that's what I get to do when I was thinking about my career. It never even occurred to me that, you know, that's something that could be a clue to, you know, what could make me happy career-wise. Sometimes it's those little things that, um, you know, you sometimes miss that might actually be, be important or, or helpful. Hi there, welcome back for another Macademia podcast episode. Myself, Oferizal Balnea, and Elena Itzkovich get together with fascinating people to explore different ways science and scientific careers can be developed outside of academia. Before we introduce our guest for today, we want to thank you, yeah, you, that join our Macademia group on Facebook, follow our account at Macademia P on Twitter, rated our little project, liked our work, or shared it with a friend or colleague. This, aside from motivating us, support others to join this important conversation as we explore those very different ways of how science is much more than just academia. Today's guest, Katie Langen, an associate editor at Science Magazine. Katie did her PhD in ecology at Colorado State University and a postdoc at the U.S. Geological Survey while making her way towards a career in science communication. In her profile over the science webpage, it says Katie reports on human dimensions of science. And reading her work, it is clear that Katie communicates the scientist, not just the science. We invited Katie to share her career path to journalism and explore how publishing affects career scientists. Our first interviewee from the uh, very big world of publishing. So we are very excited. Thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you here. Thank you for joining. <laughs> so can you uh, summarize for us your journey from PhD to publishing? So I know you've done some uh, really interesting internships along the way. Yeah, so um, so I, I spent a long time kind of singularly focused on a career in academia. And um, and so I, I did a master's degree um, before my PhD. I did, I did a PhD um, and that amounted to, let's see, more years than I probably would have liked in grad school. Um, I had to switch projects during my PhD. It took me longer than I expected. And, you know, I started off as a grad student as, when I was a master's student, you know, just really bright eyed, wanting to, you know, become a professor. And I, I don't think I gave it enough thought what other options were out there. You know, I thought, you know, if I do a great job, you know, the best go on to become professor. So that's what I would like to do. And um, the more I went through grad school, the more I just started to question that. And um, and start thinking about other options. And, and that was the case for a number of reasons. Um, 
you know, one issue I faced is that I didn't like in academia how stressed I saw, you know, everyone just seemed very stressed and I worked weekends and I worked evenings and, um, you know, work-life balance wasn't great. And um, I really questioned whether that's what I wanted for the rest of my life. So that, that was one thing that got me thinking. Another aspect was that when I moved to Colorado, um, I met a guy, he was very settled here. I really liked living in Colorado. And I started looking ahead and just, especially when I got into my thirties, just not wanting to up uproot myself again to move. You know, I really liked living in Colorado and I didn't like the idea of having to, you know, move elsewhere for a postdoc, maybe move elsewhere for a second postdoc and, um, and then move to, you know, wherever I was lucky enough to get a faculty position if that was in the cards for me. And um, so I started thinking about, you know, how can I make things work so I can live in Colorado? That was one aspect. The third reason that I think got me pushing, moving in a different direction actually wasn't obvious to me until, it was only obvious with hindsight, let's say. So, um, you know, when I was an undergraduate student, I was so interested in all sorts of different STEM courses. I loved chemistry, I loved physics, I loved biology, I loved biochemistry, geology, and I had a really hard time thinking about what I wanted to major in. Um, ultimately, I ended up going down the path of studying ecology and evolution, and I, and I really loved that. I was interested in it. I was passionate about it. I, I'm very proud of the science that I did, the publications that I had. Um, yeah, I was looking <laughs> through your record. It's really oh. impressive. So it's definitely not a, <laughs> it's not a choice. It sort of, it was a choice. It wasn't a, sort of, you were not forced to leave academia by any chance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you. Yeah, it, it definitely was a choice, but I, um, you know, I think the further along I got, the more I just got bored of being focused on this narrow sphere of science. And, um, you know, I've heard, I've heard someone describe it once that when you're a scientist, you're on the, at the frontier of knowledge, kind of pushing against this one tiny aspect of you know the sphere of you know pushing outward in terms of the collective knowledge of humanity um and there's a lot to be said for that it's really rewarding and exciting when you have a eureka moment and you know there are aspects to that that i really liked but i think the further along i got the more i kind of missed other aspects um of learning and i um when I finished up my PhD, was lucky enough to receive a AAAS Mass Media Fellowship. I've always been interested in science communication writing. In high school, I dreamt of becoming a journalist. And um, so I applied to the program. I didn't know if I would get in. Um, I ended up... How did you hear about it? Uh, someone told me about it when I was a master's student. And I had, for years and years and years, wanted to apply. But I was always doing field work in the summer or I had other things going on and it was just hard to take a break. And so I made a point of applying when I was finishing up my PhD. And, you know, I went into it thinking it's a program that trains scientists to become more knowledgeable about science journalism. And so that could involve, um, you know, a pathway into science journalism, but it can also involve just teaching scientists what 
journalism is like. So then when they go back to doing research and interviewing with journalists, they're, they're, they have a better understanding of what that's like and can maybe communicate their science better. So I went into it kind of thinking either path I take, you know, this sort of training would be useful uh, to me. Wait, so the, so the second one is basically like a, a private venture, okay, or right? Like a trainer for scientists. It's, it's a role you do by yourself. It's something that is, you can find in university. The program, is that what you're asking? No, the, the second, uh, so you said one option for career out of this oh. program would be to go into publishing and the other is to train them how to communicate. I guess better. I just mean, so I guess I just one. mean that there are a lot of different career outcomes after people go through that program. And so it's not expected that you apply to the program because you want to become a science journalist. The program really, uh, you know, it's been around for decades. And um, initially, I think the goal was actually more geared toward training scientists how to communicate better and, and getting them into the newsroom. So there was no expectation that by me applying, you know, I had to follow the path of becoming a science communicator. I think it would have been just as useful if I had stayed on in academia. But what ended up happening, so I had, I defended my PhD in April, I think it was, um, or maybe it was May. And then in the summer, so in June, I started this fellowship um, and I was placed at National Geographic and I got to go there. And my first week, um, I was thrown in the deep end and assigned stories and I got to got to write stories. And, you know, I had gone from spending years focused on this dissertation and trying to see it through to suddenly you know, learning about new things every other day and I would write stories and then an editor would edit them and literally a few hours, two hours later, they would be online and people would be reading what I wrote, which was a night and day experience to my PhD. And so, um, so I loved it. You know, it was very daunting and I felt like, you know, how on earth was I selected for this? I'm not qualified, but um, I learned, you know, sometimes you just have to get thrown in the deep end and then you learn a ton and you know, what I really liked was um, getting the chance to read about other areas of science um, that weren't just what I had been doing up to that point. And so it kind of brought me back to what got me interested in STEM to begin with, which is learning about different aspects of science. And, um, and so that experience really changed my career, career perspective. I, I I think in hindsight was better able to process what had happened to me through grad school and kind of needing to move in a different direction. Um, but I wasn't totally convinced that I wanted to leave academia yet. You know, you hear advice a lot. You, once you leave, you, you can't come back. You hear that often. And I'm not sure that's entirely that's always awesome. true, but I was given that advice. And so I had applied for a postdoc at the same time I applied for the Mass Media Fellowship and I um, and I got it and was able to delay until the fall. And so I kind of already committed to doing a postdoc and I got it in Colorado where I wanted to live. So I didn't have to move anywhere. Um, and it, it was something that it was a topic I was interested in. Um, it was well-funded, you know, it, there were a lot of things that were positive about that. So I decided to, you know, give being a scientist another try and go do a postdoc. Um, but ultimately it was clear to me during that time that I was just on a tangent to my career. You know, I, this isn't what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. Um, I, you know, I made a point of doing a good job 
on a postdoc, I think at the time, um, you know, and I, and I saw it through, but ultimately when it finished, I knew I needed to move in a different direction. Um, and, and that was really clear to me. And so, you know, some people ask me, do you regret doing a postdoc? And, and I don't regret it. There were a lot of positive aspects to it. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I got out of it was that I went in a different direction. I didn't go on to become a scientist after that. And I know that um, I think because of that experience, I can feel confident that I made the right decision. I think if I had changed directions right after my PhD, I may, may not have been quite as confident with that. But th but I say that just from my own perspective, I actually feel pretty strongly that a postdoc's not the right decision for everyone. And so I wouldn't necessarily recommend that, you know, if you're on the fence, you go do a postdoc just to do a postdoc. You know, I've written about the problems associated with default postdocs and how, um, you know, it's not the best move for everyone. Sometimes it's better to move on right after your PhD. So, so I want to make that clear that I'm not advocating that everyone go on to do a postdoc. But for me, you know, there were some downsides to it. You know, I wasn't very happy during that time, but I think ultimately it helped me um, Sometimes you have to go down the wrong path to figure out what path you should be on. You got closure with academia. Yeah. But so so during the during this postdoc, and this is something we try to also uh, allude to in most of our conversation. During this postdoc, did you um, took opportunities to really keep this communication path? on like, like a small burner, keep it going, get a bit more credentials, get, get like progress in that as well? I did as, as much as I could. Um, you know, it's kind of hard when you have a full-time demanding job to do a lot on the side. Um, it was a government postdoc. So I was a federal employee and um, one issue that I faced was that I, I did freelance but when I, and um, I wrote some stories for National Geographic after I left, um, I also wrote a few other things um, about my own research uh, on a freelance basis. But every time I did that, I had to get a government lawyer in Washington, D.C. to approve. Um, I guess it was rest in, rest in Virginia, so close to Washington, D.C., to approve me doing that. Um, and I had to talk to my branch chief about it. And so, you know, a lot of the stories that I was writing for Na National Geographic, they were quick online stories. You know, the study's under embargo. It's going to be published on Monday. You know, you can't wait all the time for a lawyer in Washington to approve something. So it became a bit of a pain, and ultimately I didn't do as much keeping up with science communication during my postdoc as I maybe otherwise would have if I had maybe had a university postdoc. Okay, so this is exactly like my next question. Let's say you're talking to our like listeners and they're in university postdocs and they're interested in science communication. What can they do? Like how they can make their first steps towards it? while doing their postdoc? Yeah, it's a question that I get all the time. And um, sometimes I have a hard time answering it because I feel like I didn't do everything that I should have um, to 
lead me in the best direction. So the best thing that happened to me was getting this AAAS Mass Media Fellowship. It's an amazing program um, that is very well regarded within the science journalism community. So if you pitch a story to an editor and you say you're a AAAS Mass Media Fellow, oftentimes they know what that is and they respect that as being a solid program. It's also a way around I've been told going to journalism school. So, you know, I've been in school for a long time. The, the last thing I wanted to do was go to journalism school, although there are some great science journalism schools out there. Um, and so it was a way for me to kind of get around that and not have to go to science journalism school. But, um, but that said, you know, science journalism school is an option if you're not burned out on school. You know, there are a number of great programs depending on what you're interested in, including um, some that are geared specifically to, to scientists, um, people in STEM to, to train them how to become journalists. Um, some other things you can do is, you know, try to get writing experience, write about your own research in whatever way you can. So the conversation is um, a web, you know, a outlet that will publish um, op-eds, um, other article types written by scientists. And, um, you know, Science Careers publishes essays written by scientists. So that's part of my job right now is, is editing um, personal stories written by scientists. And it's, it's a part of my job that I really love. We get a lot of submissions. Um, but if you have a good, uh, if you have a good personal story, you know, it's worth, worth the shot submitting to us. Um, and I think we, we do, we do edit um, the work of scientists. You know, it's not just the decision to reject or accept. Um, you know, we do help scientists tell their story. So, you know, I'm told by a number of our authors that they've really, they really learn a lot through the editing process with us. So that's an option. Um, another thing you can consider is NPR has a science communication group, and they they have a Slack. Um, they have a Slack group that has a bunch of discussions about various aspects of science communication, and they bring in mentors to talk to the people in that group about all sorts of different things. Um, they also have a, a, an office hours program where they um, basically mentor people in the group to write their own articles about their research. Um, and so those kinds of options those, those group are can, can be helpful. Yeah. So if you just Google NPR SciCom, it, it should come up and there's an email address that you can reach out to. Um, they have thousands of members, I think, at this point. Well, we will definitely link to all of those programs and resources. So thank you. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be really helpful. So can you talk, talk a little bit of uh, sort of the process of getting into science? Obviously, it's a very coveted career um how did it go so as you said you sort of you had the experience of triple as um did you just apply did you know a friend how did it go yeah so um so after i finished my postdoc i decided to freelance um for a little while so i, I worked out of out of my home and um i think it was for about eight months um did freelance writing and editing and during that time, I decided that it would be great to get another experience in a newsroom. And so I applied for the 
Um, and I had been doing a bit of freelancing for the science newsroom. So I applied for the internship position that they have. It's a six month internship with benefits um, that they have, um, that they offer twice a year basically. And, um, and to my surprise, I was, I was offered it um, when I applied and um, jumped at the opportunity of really had a lot of respect for the newsroom at Science and it was kind of a, a dream opportunity. So I, I moved to Washington DC for six months and um, got a chance to work in the newsroom. And, um, and the way I got into, into the careers section is, you know, I, when I met the Science Careers editor, um, I told her I'd been an avid science careers reader for years, you know, when I was trying to contemplate my own career path as a postdoc. Um, I went to the science careers webpage all the time. I read all of the stories. I was a very, I was like, you know, her best reader, essentially. And so I had all this enthusiasm and I, and I told her I wanted to write for the cruise section. And, you know, we, we don't all, always have interns that want to write for the cruise section. The cruise section is part of a newsroom, but we're kind of off a little bit on the side because our audience is very specialized. We are targeting early career scientists. That's our, our audience. And um, so I think it, it was nice for her to hear that I was interested. And then it, it just so happened that midway through my internship, the writer at the time for the cruise section decided to move on. She wanted to do a data journalism program and kind of try out data journalism as or sorry no um like a, a data scientist program so she wanted to um, move in that direction and um so this job opened up and and so I just feel like I was a, in the right place at the right time and you know I think especially with the career section you really want someone who understands academia, um, understands our target audience. And I think it really helps having enthusiasm for the topics that we cover because they're fairly specialized. You know, we're not writing um, stories that target a general audience. And so it's not the sort of position that would be in, of interest to any journalist. And so I had that going for me that I was genuinely, you know, enthusiastic about working for the career section and you know I think I think that helped a lot but anyway so I applied for the job um, it was an editor position I had no editing experience essentially at all except for you know my former time editing scientific manuscripts that sort of thing and so I didn't know if I was going to get it but um but I did and um I my partner really didn't want to move to Washington DC so I negotiated to be able to move back to Colorado and, and telework from here. And that's, that's where I'm working today. At a, at, so I'm in, in a garden office at the back of our, our backyard. It's, it's a very uh, uh, idyllic place to work. And I'm thankful that science is flexible enough to, to let employees telework. And that was the case, you know, even before the pandemic, but there, you know, we have employees all over the place. And so Zoom meetings every morning were just a regular part of our office experience even before the pandemic. Um, well, mm -hmm. So I have I have a question. So you went through that. You went through the motion. You did the PhD, and you you, you tell about a, a good a good experience, but with with aspects who did not fit your set of values. You went to a postdoc to get 
eventually closure with the academia. And you have, when I try to write personally, like on, that's, I'm not a science communicator, okay? But when I try to write personally and respond or bring a story forward about my experience in academia and what I think are the pitfalls and stuff like that, and, and, and maybe advise someone, I, I find it the, the hardest to stay impartial not to bring my own like pains, my own uh, uh, tough experience forward and, and really lead the way towards what I write. How, how, do, you, how do you write like a, a career, science career story about um, let's say the 2017 um, uh, report, the big report about like a career of PhDs, right? The NSF. The NSF report. How do you write it without bringing everything forward without bringing like bringing all your experiences forward? You know, it, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know that I need to hold everything back in terms of my own past experiences. You know, the science career section is a little bit different than what you see from standard journalism. We actually have a fairly we, we often write stories that take the approach that the current system doesn't work very well for early career scientists. And we don't shy away from that. You know, my, the head careers editor, she also has a PhD. Um, and so we're both very sensitive to the issues that early career scientists face. And so um, I don't know that I have to bottle up my own personal experiences, but I think one thing that's very important is to seek out um, a lot of diverse opinions. And so I spend a lot of time in my reporting, thinking through all the different perspectives on an issue and really trying to find people who can um, speak to those perspectives. And so, you know, I don't know if I always, you know, do the best job of that. I'm sure I have blinders on and I, and I fail to see some perspectives that might be out there, but um, we really do try to cover our bases in terms of if we're writing about an issue that involves, you know, top-down issues, you know, really trying to address that and finding administrators who can speak to that. Um, so I'm not sure if I answered your question, but, you know, I think, I think my past experiences do inform how I approach stories, but I try to put together stories in a way that balances the different perspectives as much as possible. Um, so at least that's the goal. Usually I say when, when someone asks me if I answered your question is that you, you, my questions are being answered if I feel that I have many more <laughs> questions to follow up, so I have. And one, one aspect that I'm, I'm curious about and also came up uh, with many other career paths, like in R&D, in, in industry, in, like in pharma or biotech, is, is teamwork. And I think that if you have this underlying, uh, underlying um, it's not assumption, but like you start, the starting point is that something is not ticking right and academia needs to be fixed. And then you write accordingly with, and you bring forward some of your experience, how does teamwork, how does your team of writers come in and really everyone pulls back, pulls towards everything and shapes the, the article together or it's, or, or 
writing a story like this is like an individual work? So, um, so my job's a little bit weird because I am a, a split between writing my own stories and editing stories by others. Um, I, I kind of, my job description is such that I, I do a bit of both of those things. So I'll speak to my experience writing my own stories. Um, so what happens is that a story idea might come about through all sorts of different ways. You know, I might spot a paper or a report that I think we should focus on. My editor is very on top of everything careers related, and she often has really great ideas um, about stories we can write. We might see something on Twitter. Um, other people in our newsroom might might suggest something that we write about. And so however the idea comes about, um, usually I'll have a chat with my editor at the outset of reporting and we, we kind of lay out what we think the story should focus on and what the structure should be. And then I set out to do research, set up interviews, you know, Sometimes it takes a long time to find sources for some of our stories, especially ones that involve, you know, personal experiences and rare personal experiences. Sometimes it takes a little while to, to find people who can speak to that. Um, so I, I do interviews. Sometimes I'll circle back to my editor and tell her what I've discovered. Sometimes I'll just sit down and, and start writing a story. Um, so I'll write a first draft. Um, and she's a wonderful editor. She does a great job with, um, you know, this quote you had towards the bottom. This is your quote. You know, you need to have it up towards the top or whatever it might be. Um, it's a very collaborative process when it gets to the editing phase. Um, and and I really like working with her. She has a has a great eye for editing. And and you know, every writer needs an editor when you are focused on trying to boil down this huge topic. Oftentimes I have this mound of reporting because as a former scientist, I want to know everything possible sometimes before I start writing. And so I have this mound of reporting and I have to boil it down to, you know, an 800 word story or something. You know, sometimes it's hard, hard to do that. And you get kind of um, tunnel vision when you're in it yourself. And so it's really important to have someone um, kind of at 10,000 feet, uh, who can say, um, you know, this detail isn't so important, or, you know, you have this hole in your story that you, you know, didn't see. And so, um, so I'm super thankful to have an editor that uh, I work really well with, and I, and I love her edits. So it's mostly um, collaboration between, between two people for the most case, for, in most cases for my stories. I, th I think it is. And I think in, uh, oftentimes in academia, people feel so alone when writing and they don't have this editor that will not, you know, criticize them for having gaps, but rather sort of light them up so that they can improve. And there's so much stress around writing, I think, uh, for scientists that we probably should adopt that into academia more and more so that the writing is less stressful for everyone. Um, so, yeah, just 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 a thought. And actually, uh, I wanted to ask, so Offer mentioned that uh, NSF report where sort of they've collected data of sort of where PhDs go and sort of what are the careers that they choose. And I was uh, reading again that uh, news, um, a piece that you wrote about it uh, now again before the interview. And I was thinking that even though you are aware of the different career paths, uh, you know, 
uh, we we talked before that we we don't you you try not to use alternative careers but there's a diverse um areas you can sort of develop your careers in even in that piece i sort of had a bit of a notion of you know the amount of academic jobs are just not will not sort of satisfy the supply and i wonder if we're not at a point where PhDs are just needed elsewhere, not just in academia. I think, you know, biology, biotech, pharma, they're all sort of flourishing, especially we can see it this year, but I think in the past several years, um, but also sort of, you know, uh, psychology, there are all kinds of sort of areas that really demand people of, with very profound knowledge of specific areas uh, that PhDs have. And I wonder how how can we or what role publishing has in in sort of switching our conception of, you know, this is the de default route of academia. Everything else is an alternative. Like we, we have to start changing it. And I think the world is changing it for us. But what what can we do to to make it normal? So I think I think that's a great question. And um, you know, one thing that I love about my job is that. I saw a lot of problems along the academic path myself, and I'm in now in a position to try to do whatever I can to help the people who are coming in after me in whatever way I can. Um, so, you know, just as an example, we write a lot of stories, as you mentioned, about the various career paths available to scientists. Um, I, I have written a few stories that have focused on, um, you know, specific tools that you can use to, to find your career path. We also, um, as I mentioned earlier, publish personal essays by scientists. So that's part of our working life section that appears on the back page of the magazine. Um, and it's very popular. And we don't always every week, you know, not every week is focused on a career path sort of story, but we often come back to essays where scientists are talking about their personal career path. So as an example, I edited one a month or two ago by a scientist who is, you know, this hotshot young scientist. He wanted to become a professor and um, his partner at the time sat him down and said, you know, I don't wanna move anywhere. I just, I wanna stay in Toronto. I love it here. What are we gonna do? And he sat down and he, and he thought about it and when he did that, he realized that he actually didn't want to become a professor. There are a lot of parts of academia that he didn't like. And he did a bunch of in informational interviews and, you know, talked to entrepreneurs and CEOs and politicians, all sorts of things. And he discovered that not only di did he have an interest potentially in, in careers other than academia. He actually couldn't decide what he wanted to do because there were so many things that were interested, interesting to him. And so he, he saw a job opening uh, in the government. He hadn't thought about the government before, but it was perfectly suited to what he was doing for his PhD and he applied for it. Um, and he's been doing that the last couple of years and he's happy, but he's Taking a leave of absence, he recently emailed me to to run in the next federal election in Canada, and so his next his <laughs> wow. next chapter of his career might be in politics. Anyway, so we we like to focus on stories like that. There was another one during the pandemic that um, that my boss edited that I really liked, and it was by someone who had 
and I might not get all the details right because it was a while ago and I didn't edit it, but he had gone down the academic path for quite a while, I think at least 10 years or so um, in various postdocs, if I remember correctly. And um, he ended up switching gears and becoming uh, a postal worker. And he talked about the joys that that brought and how, how during the pandemic, things had in some ways come full circle for him because he had been doing research on immunology, if I remember correctly. And you know now he was an essential worker during a pandemic and kind of doing his part from another side of the coin. Um, but so we have a lot of stories like that where people talk about career transitions that they made. And our goal in that is to show readers, you know, what's out there. You know, this is how one person navigated their career path. And we can show people data on, you know, different career paths. But I think individual stories are are in some cases more impactful and it really gives you a window into how that one person navigated their path in life. And, you know, they might not be at the end finish line at that point, but um, you know, this is how they've done it. And so we we really have a core goal of ours to highlight those kinds of options for our readers. The caveat to that is that, you know, we could be writing for the converted, so to speak. You know, it could be the people coming to us have already made that decision. And one issue that um, I think we all face is that ultimately, you know, change is needed at the institutional level to better prepare students for these kinds of careers. And um, just coming back to the data issue, you know, one I've written about this in the past and I've, I've encourage my own PhD program um, to do this is um, collect, I think it's really helpful if programs collect information about where their graduates go. And, and so you can present data at the federal level, but you know, I did my PhD in, a, in the ecology program at Colorado State University. Where do those graduates go? And I, you know, I've done a little bit of digging for my own program and actually the vast majority go on to be government scientists. Um, but the program, I, I didn't know that going through the program, you know, that was not obvious to me, you know, I would have assumed that becoming a professor would have been the majority career path. Um, so I think that having that kind of information can be really helpful for current students. And I think that more universities, UCSF is actually one that um, is collecting those sorts of data. Yeah, yeah. And so I think. And they're very proud yeah. of this. And I would love to see a lot more universities doing that. But in terms of, you know, the role that we play, I would love if more university administrators read our stories and kind of got a sense of the need for these kinds of programs. And, you know, we try to, we try to do whatever we can to get our stories in front of those kinds of people. But ultimately, you know, they, they need to um, find them themselves. And so, um, you know, I think we can do our part, but ultimately a lot of the problems stem from institutions not providing the support that I think they should for grad students to, to find the career that's right for them. So you, have you 
or or like science publication or the science career in general, you've tried to partner with a university to, um, I don't know, maybe promote those stories, not preach into the choir as you as you said, uh, but get get them get them while they're young, basically first year PhD where they're not yet decided. Because if you say if you say they're so in UCSF, it's quite clear, for example, that they're they they're established that they want their alumni to be at the top of everywhere, not just academia. And, and they work towards it, but is there a way that like, for example, science career can work or any kind of publication that works with it, work with the academic, uh, with the academic system to promote the career awareness at a very early stage? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I would hope that people would share our stories if they find that, found them helpful. Um, I, I guess I'm having a hard time conceptualizing what a collaboration would look like exactly. I do, I do speak to university groups that are interested um, at times, you know, pending my, depending on my, my schedule, we have a small team, so I can't say yes to everything, but I, I really do try to reach out that I'm invited to share my perspective on these sorts of issues. Um, but if, if you have ideas that are, you know, specifically geared toward what else we can do, you know, feel free to let me know. Making making it mandatory to read everything. Like a first year course. Okay, you're gonna be a scientist, but this is this is the spectrum of science career. From day one, maybe start like building yourself towards now that and listen to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can share, for example, like our, I'm, I'm, I'm from Israel originally, so I did my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD in Israel, and I just moved to the U.S. three years ago for, to do a postdoc. And I see my son going up towards middle school here, and I see kids are already prepping, prepping themselves towards like what will they be towards like college and everything. So there is planning. And in Israel, when we have high school, we have a reset because we have mandatory uh, enlist. Uh, we have to mandatory mandatory uh, enlistment, so we have to go to the army eighteen to twenty one. So everything reset, and then you can you can spend like three years thinking what you want to do. So we don't plan, but here, I guess there is there is in the U.S. Uh, um, education system from elementary school, middle school, high school, and I guess like in bachelors, there is there is a huge planning. Uh, uh, option. So why not making making it more uh, like a, a hard part of of the first year curriculum in any bachelor's, specifically in STEM, because you got a lot of options down the line. Yeah, I mean, I think we we don't focus on undergraduate students as much. We think of our target audience as grad students and postdocs. But I I I think that there should be a first year course for grad students that really focuses on professional development, thinking about career paths, and, and a course that presents students with the reality. You know, here's the percentage that goes on to different careers coming out of our program. So you should, you know, think about this as, um, you know, a framework for, for yourself going forward. Um, you know, I would be all for that. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, so, so UCSF, for example, and I did this as, a, as, a, as an international student, like two months or four months into the, the postdoc, I did a, a, a kind of course called the MIND course here at UCSF. It was part of a, a, a larger pilot program that was nationwide, but not, not implemented in all universities. But it was, 
I, I heard about it by hearsay and it was not mandatory and it was eye-opening. I got to realize a lot uh, about like different careers that I never, never thought possible, like consulting and stuff like that. But again, I had to, I had to come to it. I had to, to, to engage myself in it. It was not, it was not mandatory. Now the extent was very, very big. It was, it, it called for a huge commitment of time on my end during the postdoc. But you can do like, I can envision how you do like a, a miniature course of that at the first year of grad school. You cannot graduate, you cannot get your PhD if you haven't asked the basic question, what do I wanna be when I grow up? Like, and don't get one answer. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I think you, you've mentioned somewhere in your writing, Katie, that it's, so we have this sort of apprenticeship uh, model in, in academia. And what people don't realize is that they probably should be apprenticed by, by different people, not just their PIs, because their PIs are obviously in academia. And so they don't know well um, other career paths. So it's sort of this cycle that we need to break into. And, and as you say, like most of the people that read your stories and I, I share your stories a lot uh, to our group, to academia group, uh, because they really represent uh, really well sort of the different career choices. And, and, and I think they talk a lot about this sort of emotional process people go through when they, they have to sort of realize that they don't have to stay in academia, that it's okay to leave academia, that it's a valid career choice. It's a good career choice that they sort of, they don't need to feel so bad about it and I think as uh, you know, the soonest we can sort of get rid of those emotional processes and sort of make it a great opportunity, you know, to go to to writing, to publishing. It's it's such an important job. Yeah, I mean, I um, I think that the better we will all be. I agree, and you know, I think it's a huge problem. There's a lot of stigma tied to quote unquote, you know, leaving academia. Um, and I struggled with that a lot myself, where I really felt like I would be viewed as a failure if I didn't become a professor. And I'm the kind of person who doesn't like to let mentors down. And um, I really struggled with that. You know, I, I, um, I didn't like the idea that people would, who had invested time in me and who saw potential in me would feel disappointed. And Ultimately, I decided that I needed to do what was right for me, but it it was hard for me. You know, I'm really happy right now. I love my job. I love what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. I get to live in Colorado where I want to live. I work with wonderful people, you know, and one thing that I've learned in my career is that my colleagues determine to a great extent my happiness at work. And I just have a wonderful work environment. Science is known for having very low turnover because people are in the newsroom are happy. Um, and so I'm, I'm super thankful for that and I'm happy right now. But when I look back, you know, I went through years of really having a hard time, you know, wondering is the grass really greener on the other side? You know, I don't know where am I going to be happiest? And, you know, one thing that really helped me that I, I, I tell early career scientists who I meet is that I feel like this idea that I needed to know, you know, quote unquote, what I was going to be when I grew up. Um, I feel like that concept kind of held me back in some ways because 
I had this singular focus on becoming a professor and I followed that path and really invested in it quite heavily for years and years and years. And then when that became less interesting, I in some ways doubled down on that and kind of fought the feelings that I that wasn't what I wanted to do because I'd been so focused on that. And I and I have since so one one thing that really helped me is I read a book called Designing Your Life. Um, it's written by two instructors at, at Stanford, and they have a, a section of it that talks about how you don't have to know where you're going. You, you just need to know that you're headed in the right direction. And I really liked that concept because it kind of frees you to not have some vision of your terminal career. You know, in our generation, we're probably going to have a lot of different iterations of our career over our, our lifespan. And, um, and so that really freed me to focus on, okay, am I headed in the right direction? Does this feel right? So in this, in this book, um, they describe this concept that you don't need to know where you're going. You just need to know you're headed in the right direction. And for me, that's really freeing because I don't know if I'm going to be a journalist for the rest of my career, but I know that what I'm doing right now is pointing me in the right direction and I feel comfortable in that and I'm not worried about that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fantastic book. And I think for everyone who is struggling, I also read it, sort of read it and, and have the, their, um, they have like a workbook that you can go through. Um, so anyone who's sort of not sure what, what they can do, uh, it really helps you map out mm -hmm. Uh, what you like, what you enjoy, uh, what you're interested in, and sort of what you, where you can go in a very, very creative way. Um, so it's, um, it's really fun. I think we, sh we should link to that one as well. Um, yeah, Katie, exactly. I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, thank you so much for your insights. I think these struggles that you mentioned of sort of coming to terms with, with uh, changing career or sort of moving in a different direction from the one that you were working so hard towards um, over the years is, is, is really mutual to so many scientists around the world. Um, is there anything else you would like to add before, before we wrap up? Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I can talk about career paths endlessly. Um, it's something that I've always been interested in. I actually, looking back, you know, speaking of that book and thinking about what you're interested in, I actually always loved sitting down and having a beer with people and asking them what led them, you know, to where they are today and talking about, you know, when they reached a fork in the road, how did they make a decision to move, you know, in one direction or the other. And I always was fascinated by those kinds of conversations. And it wasn't actually until I got my current job that I realized, oh, that's what I get to do professionally now. You know, I get to ask people about their career paths and what led them in different directions. And so, you know, that's something like when I was thinking about my career, it never even occurred to me that, you know, that's something that could be a clue to, you know, what could make me happy career wise. Sometimes it's those little things that, um, you know, you sometimes miss that might actually be, be important or, or helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. I think in the book, they talk about sort of noting little points during the day, uh, sort of which parts you enjoy, and then you have the opportunity to find out that you actually enjoy teaching or you enjoy sort of explaining complicated complex or, or 
or you just enjoy sort of sitting by yourself and writing mm-hmm. and and they give you tools to sort of identify those little moments and and came up with sort of insights about what you actually enjoy doing whereas this sort of title of you know a scientist it's so broad that you know as you say like you started with with being interested being a scientist but you ended up doing something very different from what you sort of was was hoping for when you were planning this career path yeah um, i think people can get caught up in this idea that we should just do what we're passionate about and i think sometimes you lose sight of the day-to-day activities that are really going to make or break whether you like a job and so you know you might be passionate about you know questions related to genomic research for instance but you might hate sitting at a lab bench pipetting all day long um <laughs> and so i know no, that's me. <laughs> um yeah that's me too you know i also don't love writing computer code um and you know i have friends who love it you know they could write computer code all day they love debugging computer code and i just can't bring myself to enjoy it you know i'd much rather write the introduction to a manuscript um and do all sorts of other things and so yeah that book really helps people i think hone in on what makes them happy on a day-to-day basis and and for me it was really illuminating just thinking through all of their different um, worksheets that they had the homework assignments that they had and and really focusing on what makes me happy on a day-to-day basis you know another thing that is really important to me is that I'm an introvert and so I would never want a job where I was um, you know meeting people and all day long. You know, I, I love doing interviews. Doing interviews is one of my favorite parts of my job, but I, I couldn't do them all day long because that, I would end up at the end of the day just completely exhausted. And so they point out things like that where, you know, if you think about what makes you happy and also what gives you energy, what takes away energy, what keeps you engaged at work, you can, you can get a lot of clues to what kind of career could make you happy. Absolutely. First of all, a, a, a great insight into the world of science communication, publication, and and writing about science career and, and and making choices that are we always say are in line with the with your values. And and really thank you for being that open and honest. That's very important. I enjoyed it. And I guess my <laughs> listeners will enjoy it as well. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much, Katie. It's been really a pleasure. Thanks for having me.